Praise and worship is not an estimation of God's greatness. It is how great you think He is. It's your estimation. What is He worthy of from you today? I don't know what He's done for you. I know what He's done for me or my wife. And there is no way that my praise is adequate. There's no way. But I think that we should at least give God our best. I kind of wish I had a video of a rock concert so you could see the way the people worship the devil at a rock concert for hours on end. No, I don't wish. We've all seen it. Some of us in our past lives have been there and similar things. That's why I really never went to... Uh, gospel sings because people clap for the people that were singing and playing the instrument. That's not what we're supposed to be clapping for. We're marvelously blessed here with a worship team uh, that's not only gifted with a voice and music and song and all the stuff that goes along with that, none of which I know anything about. But when we walked in the door about five after eight this morning, we walked into a holy atmosphere. The worship team was praying in the spirit. There was intercession. There was people praying in tongues. There were people weeping and groaning and mourn, moaning. And it was, as I said to the Lord when I walked in the door, I said, this is the sound of revival. I'd like to greet our visitors and guests to here, and I want you to know something, uh, if you're not familiar with us, that you are among some of the greatest people on the planet, some of the sweetest people on the planet. The Bible talks about he who would give his life for a friend. And I told the Lord when I came up here, I don't have anything to say. So if you want something said, you're going to put something in my mind. So you shouldn't blame God for what's getting ready to come out of the bishop's mouth. <laughs> 
Jesus talked about giving your life for another. If you can't even go up and shake somebody's hand and hug their neck. Oh, my goodness. We're way beyond giving ourselves for our lives for a brother or sister when we can't even hug somebody's neck or greet them. Oh, Lord, help me to go on and get off of this. Ushers, please come. Thursday night, Brother Morgan preached. I've heard the message before that he preached someplace else. It was entitled, Into the Troubled. And while we had previously watched the message when he preached it at another conference, Thursday night, I received something completely different from what Brother Morgan preached. And I'm going to tell you if, you, if you haven't heard that, it's, it's, there's a number of those uh, that he preached online, but this one he preached at because, or not because of the times, but at the Pentecostals of Alexandria, and it's the one that you need to go and listen to, because the temperament of the Spirit is that we're getting ready to go into trouble, to trouble times. You're going to need me when you get there, and I'm going to need you when we get there. We're going to need one another when we get there, so we need to settle some stuff here today. We need to fix some things here today. And I appreciate those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, but those of you that do, Holy Ghost warned us in prayer. Warned us. I know we're hearing a voice. Just make sure you're hearing God's voice. Let's pray right now. Jesus. We are completely in submission to the Holy Ghost. Whatever you want to do in this place is all right with us. We're getting ready to give our tithe and offering, and our substance means nothing unless you bless it. So we pray blessing upon it, and God, that you will release your power, your virtue, your mercy, and your grace into this place today and do a great work among us. Someone say in Jesus' name, Lord bless you as you give.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to read two verses of Scripture. Verse 1, but now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Knowing where I'm going later on, verse 1 is just really speaking to me right now. The Lord that created thee, O Jacob. But when he spoke of Israel, he didn't say created. He said that formed thee, O Israel. Verse 7, everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Everyone that is called by my name. When Kathy married me, she took on my name. For the last 49 years, as of last Thursday, she is a Bruce. She's no longer a Fraser. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you take on his name. And this is a prophetic scripture. Everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. God bless you, may be seated. Our text mentions Jacob, and we will, I promise you, come back to him in a moment. But it's clear by these and many other scriptures that each person is born or each person is created by God with an express purpose in mind, and the ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God. Obviously, sin and the subsequent curse that was placed upon all of mankind has separated us from our God, from our Creator, and has greatly interfered with His creative purpose in our lives. And so what we want to do today, it's our desire to bring God's divine and creative intent for each and every individual present back into focus and to restore the process through which God can accomplish his original intent and will for why he created you. Psalms 95 Verses 1 through 6, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. 
and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. All come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's no question among apostolics, and hopefully most of all of us who are present today, that God is solely, singularly responsible for creating the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. Now, he could have just as soon left off all the creeping things and just forgot about them. But he didn't do that, so we have to live with them in southwest Florida. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the, in the image of God created he him, and for the world to hear, male and female. Created he them because he was the crowning achievement to God's creation. Unlike any other creature in his creation, man was made in the image of God. There is more to that than we can possibly unpack in this message today. But God not only desired to have an intimate relationship with Adam and Eve, as we have read, where God would come into the garden in the cool of the day and walk with the first man and the first woman, but he desires to have a relationship with every person, every human being, every man and woman that he creates. This was acknowledged by King David, but the following words were not meant for him alone in Psalms 139, verses 1 through 5, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest me or my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. And yet he still loves us and pursues us. For there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Verse 13, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. 
I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. I know that this is somewhat rudimentary to an apostolic believer, but stay with me for a few minutes, if you will, because the word fearfully and wonderfully here indicates the extra care, the extra thought that went into the design and the making of man and the woman. God put extra attention on making man and woman because we are made in the very image of Almighty God. According to the latest research, and I do mean the latest research, the human body consists, or at least the adult human body, consists of 100 trillion cells. 100 trillion cells. I wish my bank account understood something about the word trillion. The human body is the most complex biological organism in all of God's creation and as technologically advanced as we are in the world today, how the human body functions is still a mystery to mankind. The human body is as far away from man's understanding as the farthest reaches of the universe because God made us in his image and who can understand God? Not only is this extraordinary body formed by God from a handful of dirt, unlike any other creature in his creation, we are comprised of both spirit and soul. We are made up of body, soul, and spirit. Evolution didn't figure that out. That's what I call it now. It's evolution. It's not evolution. Evolution can't put a spirit in anything that's developing if it is developing. You are an act of God. You need to understand that. You do not get here by accident. You were not a blip on his screen. He, didn't say, he did not say oops when he made you. You are an act of God's creative nature and God's creative power. We have a spirit and we have an eternal soul that is going to live somewhere forever and forever. So regardless of what you think, regardless of what your biology teacher told you, regardless of what you believe, you are not a mistake. It's possible, in fact, it's probable that you have not yet reached the pinnacle of your God-given potential. I don't know that any of us have. Perhaps when you reach that, that's when God takes you home. So if you want to go home, reach your potential. I've always complained about how we're young and energetic and, you know, we just have all this vitality, but it goes away. He should have started old. And we should have got younger as we aged. 
But if that were the case, my wife would be changing my diaper right now. So, <laughs> so God, again, knew exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and when he had no other to counsel with, he counseled with himself. And that's one of the ways we understand the wonderful oneness of Almighty God. So if you have not yet reached your God-given potential, do not despair because, as the song years ago said, God is not finished with you yet. So regardless of the man and woman who was responsible for your entrance into this world, you are not an unintended consequence of some cosmic creative process. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is an extraordinary thing what God has done with a handful of dirt. And he has filled each of us with divine and extraordinary possibilities, none of which we can reach without him. Without him. So despite God's creative intent for you and every individual, external influences, I want to say it again, external influences, sin, and the curse uh, that is upon mankind, the broken human condition itself, all of these things and more has derailed us, has derailed us. Even living for God, we tend to get our wheels off the rail once in a while and we got to deal with these circumstances and situations. Job 3, 1 through 3, after this, opened Job's mouth and cursed his day. He cursed the day he was born. I never cursed the day I was born. Now, my mother did. I weighed 10 pounds, 9 and a half ounces. My mother was not so happy that day. She carried me for 10 months. That's the problem, see. Back then, they didn't induce labor. So that extra month, I said, oh, boy, I'm going to grow a little bit here. Job cursed the day he was born. He said in verse 2, and Job spoke and said, let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, there's a man child conceived. Let the day be darkness, let not God regard it from above, neither let the light shine upon it. And I perceive that there are men and women out there on the streets of our city that are today, right now, cursing the very day they were born and the life they've been born into. Because it certainly hasn't went according to God's plan. This is the mistake that many people make, believing that they're fixed in whatever uh, situation they're in. They cannot change anything about it. They cannot change their life because of their pedigree or because of their family name or because of the things that were done to them when they were children or because of their genetic code or their upbringing or their social economic standing or whatever it might be. They're fixed and locked into this thing and can't change it or themselves. This was the perception of the religious system that Jesus faced when he was alive during his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, the religious system of Judea. And it was the reason that Nicodemus came and had to sit down with Jesus and talk to him about things. He was very befuddled in his mind 
And uh, you would think that after a conversation with Jesus, he would walk away with all of his questions answered. I think he left with more questions than what he went with. That happens sometimes with God. When he starts talking to us, and we're going, Lord, what do you mean by that? Well, go back to that. I didn't catch that. The Lord speaks to me often, and, and a lot of times it's months before I finally figure out exactly what God was talking to me about. So John 3, 3 renders this. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know why they invented the, the, the idea of reincarnation? Because in man's psyche, he still wants an opportunity to, to have another chance at this. So desirous to get another chance, another swing at the ball, they invented and concocted this silly thing called reincarnation. Except a man be born again. Well, what's wrong with what he made the first time? It's not that he failed. When you were in that non-cognitive prenatal position for nine months, but the unfortunate reality is that we've all been born under the curse of sin, whether we like it or whether we don't. Yeah, I was bullied in grade school. I'm not going to let it ruin my life. We're born into a messed up world, and it's getting more messed up every single day. And so this scholarly Pharisee contemplated the possibility of returning to the place where God's hands had originally formed his life. And so he asked Jesus the question. Now, this is a very educated religious scholar of his day. Can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Just the image of that, we have to get that out of our mind. If 10 pounds, nine and a half is trouble, what is a 160 pounds going to do? Now, we can pick on Nicodemus, but we struggle with concepts just like he struggled with this concept. But to answer his question, of course not, Nicodemus. We cannot go back to where, nor can we go back to when, that God shaped it molded and formed us by his creative hands. What we can do, however, is we can be born again. We can be reborn. This is what caused Nicodemus to be scratching his head. Being born again gives an individual an incredible opportunity to start over. Of course, not chronologically, not physically, but spiritually. To be born again requires a person to first repent of their sins. I understand someone's going to get baptized today, right? Please, please, I, I don't know who it is. But I beg you, completely, totally repent of your sins before you go into the water. Because the only way that water baptism is valid in an eternal sense 
is when we die out to sin and self at an altar of repentance. And then when you go through the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus, everything you ever did, everything you ever said, every evil word, every evil thought, every evil act, every evil deed, everything that was offensive to God will not only be forgiven, but will be washed away. Clear the slate. Clear the record. How many of you remember when you were baptized in the name of Jesus? Woo! If I have one regret, it's that we only get to do that one single time. Because I'm telling you, that was one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible, experience of my life. What I should have said when I come up out of the water is, God, take me now. Don't give me a chance to mess up. But I didn't know any better. And, of course, to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it is, it is impossible for those who have God's Spirit dwelling within them to describe the, the wonder of it all. But the transformation that takes place when one is obedient to the gospel is so incredibly profound that Jesus said it's like being born again. It is being born again. And, of course, you will not change intellectually. You will not change physically. Uh, you will not change academically. But you will change. When we visited a friend of mine that uh, I worked for in Florida, went to high school with him, moved to Fort Walton Beach to go to work with him. He had a construction company. And it was there that we went to church and, and uh, gave our lives to God. And it was a couple years ago I got to visit with him and his wife in, when we were in Missouri. And he was telling us about how crazy I was. I didn't remember that. I didn't remember being crazy. <laughs> he said we couldn't shut you up. I don't remember that. It was completely news to me. Listen, friend, when God does something that profound to you, it deserves your attention. It deserves a testimony because you will not be the same. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm going somewhere. It's just taking me a little bit to get there. You know me. Therefore, Lock, deal with your wife, will you? If you need any help, take your son with you. <laughs> this only applies to men, sis. If any man be in Christ. <laughs> he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the transformation is the result of the creative and now the redemptive power of God being placed upon an individual. It's nothing short of amazing, but I'm compelled to mention that this amazing transformation begins with 
and I, I've never used these words, but it is sustained by repentance. It begins with repentance. Now, when the Lord began to deal with me about putting this in the message, I, I kind of balked a little bit, uh, but then there was a uh, message through the gifts of the Spirit earlier that talked about the altar. Okay, God, you're in charge as usual. We heard Brother Morgan Thursday night, and we've heard him many preach many times, and he has said repeatedly that just because you pray doesn't mean that you have an altar. I, I Honestly, I was thinking about it before church. Where do we ever begin to equate prayer and an altar? When did we begin to connect prayer with an altar? You don't go to an altar just to communicate. You go to an altar to kill something. You go to the altar to die. And so because a lot of our prayers is not at an altar, we're not dying. We're doing a lot of talking, a lot of communicating, a lot of conversing. We're not, we're not doing a lot of dying. Prayer is where we take our praise. It's where we take our worship. We take our, our intercession, our burdens, the cares of life. It's where we petition God and we intercede and supplicate. And that's what we do in prayer. But the altar is where we take our pride. The altar is where we take our rebellion. It's where we take our selfishness. Our ego, our anger, our conceit, our carnality, and everything else that is in God's way. And there we hold it down until it cannot get up from the altar. The horns on the brazen altar was not for decoration. It was for tying large animals down and keep them on the altar until they were dead. And talk in tongues. Jeff Arnold used to say, we used to cackle when he said it, talk in tongues like a Chinese laundry and still have bitterness in your heart. You can talk in tongues all day long and still have a rebellious spirit. We used to say years ago, we finally gave up on it in Pentecost. Some of you old timers will remember, just go pray through. And so we'd go pray through and talk in tongues, but we still had the hurt in our heart or the, the bitterness in our spirit or the anger and frustration. Just praying through was not enough because you don't go to an altar to pray. You go to an altar to die. Hebrews 5.15, the Lord said, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. We've heard the cliche for years that prayer changes things, but I would like to introduce a new cliche. It is that the altar changes people. I must move on. The altar is not a comfortable place. It was never meant to be comfortable, uh, hence the brazen altar. 
It wasn't padded. It was not carpeted. And so the Bible says in Deuteronomy 27, 6, Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones or of unhewn stones. Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. So the stones which were to go into these altars that were made in the wilderness were not to be made from stones that were rounded off or ground smooth because the altar was supposed to be a place that was unpleasant. The altar was to be, to be a place that was uncomfortable. I can't even imagine. I remember Dad and I hunting one time, and, and we killed, it was rabbit season, we killed a rabbit, and I remember the smell as we, as we field-dressed that rabbit. The smell inside that carcass was horrible, and I've often thought, what were the smells and the odors like around the brazen altar when people gathered as the, as the priests who would offer sacrifice after sacrifice and burn the flesh and the carcass on the altar? The altar is a place to die when Joshua and the children of Israel entered into Canaan, this commandment was reintroduced, although it had been years since its inception, Joshua 8, 30, 31. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lifted up an iron. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. But I want to talk to you about what God makes. When Jesus was in this world, he did not come as an accountant. He did not come as an entrepreneur. He came and filled the occupation of a carpenter. Because God likes to make stuff. And so let me just talk for a moment about vessels. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. In a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man, therefore, purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel of honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So God, being the master craftsman and the artisan that he is, he makes two kinds of vessels. He makes vessels of honor, and he makes vessels of dishonor. Right? There has to be a contrast. For us to understand the concept. So they're vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. If you want to be a vessel of honor, it's contingent upon you purging yourself from the things that would dishonor God. Bring dishonor to his name. Bring dishonor to his church. And we do that through the blood of Jesus Christ and with an altar. So what Paul wrote to Timothy about these vessels was so important, he includes it in his letter to the Romans 9.21, Hath not the potter power over the clay? 
of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Does the potter have power over the clay? I don't recall ever seeing God nudge me a little bit over here, would you? I'm a little out of whack over here. I don't recall ever giving him instructions about how to form my life or what to form it into. But we've all heard messages about the potter's wheel, haven't we? If you've heard at least one message about the potter's wheel, just raise your hand and wave it to me. That's quite a few of us. So we know that the potter has power over the clay. But ladies and gentlemen, we're no longer in that precognitive, prenatal place called the womb where we don't have a say to nothing, just whatever. We have a will now. We have established the path of life, relationships. We've been down a few roads. We've experienced a few things. You get on the potter's wheel. We're not in a non-cognitive state anymore. You're aware of everything that's going on. I went to a dentist a number of years ago, and, and he used to do nitrous oxide. And so I told him one day, I said, can I just come by the office once in a while and just put me in a chair and just, blah, you know, that stuff is wonderful. He used to ask me after I was on it for a while, getting ready to do a root canal or something, how you feeling? I'm about 32,000 feet. You know, you can cut my hands off. I don't care. We're not like that on the potter's wheel. We knew every nudge. We, we, we feel everything. We're aware of everything. And we go there in our human will. It is never set aside or abandoned. So if God's going to do a work in your life, I know you've got an idea. I know you've got some preferences about what you want him to do. But you're going to have to put yourself in his hands and say, okay, God, whatever it is, whatever your design is, whatever your plan is, you've got to, as the song we used to sing, we need to be yielded and still in the hands of of God. Why is that? Well, because in order for the potter to work with the clay, it's got to be soft. It's got to be, it must be pliable. It must be subject to his slightest touch. See, the, the potter forms things not with his eyes, but with his hands. The potter could be blind, doesn't matter. He feels the clay. Every edge, everything about the clay, he's feeling it as it goes around and round upon the potter's wheel. But I think that we have generally viewed the potter's house in a negative way. I think that we have at least generally viewed the potter's house to be the enforcement of God's sovereign will upon our lives. We've looked at the potter's wheel as not that, that pleasant of an experience Oh, do I got to go there again? Is he calling me there again? Oh, my gosh, what's he going to do now? And I must admit that when you look at everything as a whole, it at least appears that God autonomously determines who and must and when they must return to the potter's wheel. That's what it looks like. 
we're subject to God's autonomous will for our lives. And sometimes he says, hop up here. Time to go down that long, narrow path at the end to which you know there is a house there, and that is the potter's house. You're not there for lunch. You're not there for victuals. You're not there for a cup of tea. The potter wants to spend some time with you. So occasionally, we find ourselves on the potter's wheel. How do you know when you're on the potter's wheel? How do you know that that's exactly, precisely where you are? You know because of that strange spinning sensation that you feel. Many times you thought your life is spinning out of control. No, it's spinning into control. The reason for that spiritual vertigo is because God's doing something. <clears throat> but what would happen? I want you to think about it for a moment. What would happen if we would acknowledge what the master is capable of doing with those marvelous hands of his and then we voluntarily climb up on the potter's wheel and say, work on me, God. Work on me, Lord. Put your hands on me again like they were on me when I was in my mother's womb. Put your hands on me again like they were when I was, I was coming through the birth canal of the gospel, repenting of my sins, being baptized in the name of Jesus, being transformed by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. God, put your hands on me again because I'm out of balance. I'm out of whack. I'm feeling some things I don't like. I, I've got some temptations going on. I've got some feelings, some urgency, some bitterness, some things. God, put me on the wheel. I really need your hands to be on me again. Why do we have to wait for him to call us to the potter's house? Say, well, Maybe you need God more than I do. I don't know about you, but I know that I disappoint God sometimes. I know every time when I do that. It never happens behind the scenes or where I can't detect it or see it. I know exactly when it happens, and i got to go crawling to God again, saying, God, I'm so sorry that I was a disappointment to you again. I don't know about you, but I have to frequently ask for God's mercy and for God's forgiveness. I know the Bible says, and I've even talked to God about this, He said we can go boldly to the throne of grace. I don't feel a lot of boldness when I'm approaching the holy throne of God. I don't feel like skipping into the throne and saying, well, how you doing today, God? It's not the way I can come. I know me too well. And he knows me even better than I do. So sometimes I have to even apologize to my sweet wife. And the Senior pastor session at men's conference. Brother Dean talked to us. And he said, my greatest 
attribute and trait among great preachers is that I'm transparent. And he said, I've made a lot of mistakes. And I've hurt people in my ministry. And I failed during my ministry. One of the things I often thank God for, probably more than, he's probably getting tired of hearing it, but I just can't stop thanking him for being patient with me and long-suffering with me. Prayer lives grow cold. Lives get off track. Where do we go? We've already been through the water. How do we make these divine course corrections? We've already been through the water. We got off course even filled with the Holy Ghost. What do we do now? Where do we go now for a course correction and to fix some of this stuff? We go to the potter's house. That's where we go. So I've discovered, at least for me, that regular visits to the potter's house, regular visits to an altar of unhewn stone, regular experiences of spiritual vertigo is the cost of discipleship for me. It's the cost of true discipleship. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12 is like a banner that should be held before all of our eyes. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he Fall and where are we the most likely to fall when we're going around and round in a place where God can do a special work in our lives? The story of Jacob is an incredible story. His return to Canaan after being gone for 20 years is very intriguing to me. There are many peculiarities about the account of Jacob's return to Canaan with his children, his wives, his substance, the things, the servants, all that God had blessed him with. And the reason that Jacob left in the first place was because he, uh, he had connived and lied and stolen his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. And Esau was equitably angry with him and made a vow. That's serious business. He vowed to kill his brother Jacob. And so Jacob was afraid of his older brother. He was afraid of what Esau would do upon his return, and yet he was so compelled by God to do so that he could not resist. So on his way, as Jacob drew near to the land of Canaan, the Bible says, now listen to me, that angels met him. Angels. He was met by the angels of God. Genesis 32 and 2, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. 
And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim meant that God was literally encamped amidst Jacob and his household. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was met by the angels of God, I don't think I'd be worrying about tomorrow. But Jacob was. He had such deep anxiety about meeting Esau. What was going to happen to his children and his wives and his servants that now, even though God is encamped with him and his family, Jacob is still nervous and anxious about meeting Esau. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau, thy servant Jacob, thus saith, or saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. Make sure you tell Esau this stuff is yours. I'm bringing this to you. These are my gifts to you, my brother. Apparently, Jacob did not receive the news he was expecting from these servants that returned to him because they said, we came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee and 400 men with him. There's a twist to this story. I want you to keep that in mind, that in a few minutes, there's going to be a complete twist to anything you've ever heard about Esau and Jacob's meeting before. Verse 7 says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Wait a minute, dude, you got angels here. They're walking around. I don't know how big and tall. You got angels here, man. But he was greatly afraid and distressed. So he divides the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two bands. And he figured the worst case scenario, he'll attack one band. They were actually in different bands, and everybody else will be able to escape Esau's wrath. And that night, Jacob prayed. How many times have you read in the Bible that Jacob prayed? Hell will make you pray. Trouble will make you pray. Brother Morgan says, when we enter into trouble, we're going to see miracles like we've never seen before. Do you know why? Because in the trouble, people will start praying. Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saith unto me, return unto thy country to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and smother the children. 
And thou sayest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And the Bible says that night, take up to 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milch kinds or camels, with their colts, 40 kind, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, 10 foals. And he sent them on and he stayed behind to talk to God. By the time now it's late in the evening, everyone is gone and Jacob finds himself all alone, Genesis 32, 24, there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. We know that this was an angel of the Lord. It's not just an angel, it was a theophany or an angel of the Lord or God in the form of an angel. So uh, Jacob's uh, uh, foe or the one he wrestled with was very formidable. And he wrestles now with the angel of the Lord. I find that so strange that he's wrestling with God. His whole life is in a turmoil. The uncertainty of his tomorrow is before him. And God shows up and he grabs a hold of God. Albert Barnes' commentary says when God has a new thing of a spiritual nature to bring in the experience of man, he begins with the senses. That's why we listen. That's why we feel after God. He deals with our senses. He takes man on the ground on which he finds him and leads him through the senses to the higher things of reason, conscience, and communion with God. Worship team, would you join me on the platform and bring your anointing with you? If we take this commentary into consideration, we can see that God was now, in the latter stages of Jacob's trial, engaging all of his senses just hours before his tragic meeting with Esau. But now, in the twilight of his uncertainty, Jacob is intertwined with the living God. He will not let go of the opportunity. And when the angel saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. You see, the angel of the Lord encountered Jacob at the point where he was the strongest. And true to his character, Jacob, the heel grabber, as he was known, struggled with his contestant and would not concede. I want you to hear it. He would not concede. I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like, but I'm not I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. He would not let up or let go. And so it was then that God touches the socket of Jacob's thigh and it wrenched out of joint. 
the thigh is the pillar of a man's strength. Its joint with the hip is the seat of physical force for a wrestler. Let the thigh bone be thrown out of joint and the man is utterly and completely disabled by his opponent. So without any support whatever from himself, Jacob now hangs on to his conqueror and in that condition learns by experience the practice of soul and total and utter reliance on one that is mightier than himself. Up until that moment, he was still trusting in himself. Up until that instant, he was still relying on himself to get out of a jam, to figure a way out of his trouble. But now, for the first time in his life, he is completely and totally submitted to one mightier than himself. And this is the turning point in this strange drama, which is exactly what we're attempting to lead you today, to a turning point in your life. And so the invitation to the potter's house comes with a caveat. And the caveat is, you must be warned, you may not always receive the results that you expected. Paul served the strongest strength in the universe, the almighty God. And on bended knee and Tears in his eyes and pain in his soul. He had to finally admit that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. If you want to see the strength of God, you have to get to the point of your weakness. Speaking to myself right now. When you place yourself in the autonomous hands of God, be prepared for whatever he has planned for you. Young men and women, when you bow in prayer and say, God, I'll go anywhere, you better be careful with what comes out of your mouth. God, I will do anything you want me to do. Be careful because God is taking notes on everything that you pray everything that you say. So wrapped in the hands of divine substance, Jacob would ask for two things. Two things. Remarkably so, he would ask for just two things. As the angel continued to attempt to break Jacob's grip, even in his agony, Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. My lands, my Lord, that just speaks so strongly to me. I will not let you go. I don't know how long I can hold on in my agony, but I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
I don't know what waits me and my family on the morrow, but right now I need a blessing from you. The second thing that Jacob would ask, he would ask to know the angel's name. What is your name? If you'd stand with me. We are moments from opening the altar. I find it interesting that Jacob never mentioned Esau in his interlude with God. The subject of Esau never even came up. He never said, God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to send an army of angels before me into the open field. He never went into any of that. He just said, God, what I need right now is a blessing. Listen to me. When you can't figure stuff out, stop asking God for details. Just say, God, what I need right now, I just need a blessing. I just need a blessing. I just need a blessing. Just bless me little bit right here and right now but something occurred to me and I must admit it took so many years for me to see this in the scriptures but it occurred to me as Jacob had a hold of the angel of the Lord and as the angel of the Lord had a hold of Jacob there it occurred to me that for all of these years, I have prayed and sought to pray until I got a hold of God. And how many times have we heard it, get a hold of God, get a hold of God. But something's changed in me since this. Now I want to pray until he gets a hold of me. I want to pray until God gets a hold of me. You know why? Because I can let go of him. All right, it's been an hour. I'm letting go. Okay, it's been an hour and a half. I'm letting go. It's been a while and I'm satisfied. I'm content. I'm good, God. No, I want you to get a hold of me and hold on to me until you're ready to let me go. Lastly, the angel of the Lord performed an act of profound significance in Jacob's life. Genesis 32, 27 and 28. He said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Of course, that's the angel of the Lord speaking to Jacob. What is your name? And he replies, Jacob. And then the angel of the Lord said to him, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob. But Israel, for as a prince has power with God and with men and has prevailed. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with man and hast prevailed. Through all of this, God never changed Jacob's situation. He never changed the circumstances the predicament that he was in, what he changed was Jacob's name. He changed his name from deceiver, supplanter, defrauder, to a prince with God who has prevailed. He changed his name. I preached from this 
account so many times. I can't even tell you how many times that has been. And I've always thought the same thing. Maybe you're way ahead of me in Revelation. God bless you if you are, but I've always thought that when Jacob, now Israel, finally goes down and greets Esau, Esau wasn't mad at him. Esau wasn't angry with him. Esau wasn't ready to kill him. Esau wasn't there to, to, to annihilate his family. And so I thought this. All of this on the mount was not even necessary. All of his, all of his fear and all of his anxiety was completely unnecessary. But was it? You see, Esau was planning on meeting Jacob. But instead, he met Israel. He was planning on meeting a liar and a cheat. But instead, what came to greet him was a prince and his countenance changed from one of anger and bitterness that had festered in him for 20 years. So he went on the prince, his brother Israel, and put his arms around him and they wept on one another. I'm here to tell you, that when God changes you, everything around you will change. When God changes you, the people around you will change. When God gets a hold of you on the potter's wheel and does a work in your life, everything else in your life will change. Everything. Esau today as Jacob. I want to meet my Esau today as a prince with God. As one that's been blood washed whose hands has been upon my life for 48 years now. I want to meet my enemy as a prince with God where the host of heaven is gathered not to fight my battle but to rejoice in what God has done. I invite you to do the same. I invite you to come to this altar today. Don't come as we normally do and, and spend a few minutes and walk out the door with the same, the same sin and the same spirit and the same attitude. And my God, help us today to come lay ourselves upon the potter's wheel. And say, God, don't let me leave here the way that I came. Come as Jacob, leave as Israel. Come as a loser, leave as a winner. Come as a lost person, leave as a child of God. Oh, God. My God. give you permission not as if you needed it. You can push on this clay. You can shape this vessel. You can shape this clay any old way you please. If it suits you, it suits me. 
If it pleases you, it pleases me. If it makes you happy, God, it will make me happy as well. Carpenter. Make me 
sovereignly just step in and override all of our faults and failures and sins 
and lukewarmness and just pour out revival upon us. It's not going to be that way, church. It's for a people who has prepared themselves, a people who are ready for that kind of a demonstration of That's where revival is going to occur. For those of you that are familiar with the Azusa Street Revival, people would walk in the door, they would fall to the wooden floor speaking in tongues, healed, delivered of demonic possession. Do you know why? Because it was a place of continual and perpetual prayer. It just was not some sovereign address on Azusa Street that God picked out and said, okay, I'm going to do that right here. Read about the sacrifice, the prayer of the people, of the men and women of God that brought about that kind of a demonstration of God. My Lord. We need God, church. We need God to meet with us. Not in the vestibule of our ideas and concepts and Pentecostalism. We need God to take us behind the stuff that happens on the altar and the labor and in the holy place and get beyond that where the glory of God permeates over the ark of God and where the cherubim's wings touch and the glory of God is manifest over the mercy seat. Where men cannot stand, conversations cannot be held. Dialects mean nothing, but God's glory means everything. My God. My God. My Lord, my God, my God, my God. Everything was all right in Isaiah's life and ministry until he saw the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple with the seraphims with six wings chanting holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory he was never the same after that and it wasn't just because an angel took a coal off of the fire of the altar with a pair of tongs and laid it on his mouth. It's because of what he saw. It's because of what he beheld. So would you do me a favor today? Would you compress all the years that you have served God and known him as one God all the years that 
You have known the Acts 2.38 plan of salvation. All the years you've been filled with God's Spirit and your sins have been under the blood. And when you stand with me, no matter how many years it's been here today, and say, God, I have seen nothing. I have seen nothing. I've only got a glimpse of your glory, Jesus. But I want so much more. I'm so hungry for more. I can't rely on the years of my service anymore. I need you, God. I need you, Jesus. I need you to take us to places we've never been. I need to behold you under your shadow in secret places of the Most High. God, there's a cry from within us today. We've not arrived. We don't hold any records. We're just here by the grace of God and we're pleading for a greater manifestation of grace and glory. My God, I don't want to be the same when I leave here today. I'm tired of me. I'm tired of me. Oh, God. My God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Chica, tu rebajita rejebesi, Jesus. Jesus. May your hands be on us right now. May the clay be pliable in the hands of our Creator. May you begin to form something in us that has been missing. We can't live on this side of the veil. We gotta go on the other side where the glory is.
He's breathing on some of you right now. His breath is upon some of you right now. <laughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. <laughs> my God. My Lord and my God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Come on, let him work among us. It took a lot to get him here. It took a lot to get him here. Let's not be quick. Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Some of you have gone through so much. God is not oblivious to your pain, to your suffering, to the anxiety that you've had. God knows all about it. He's aware of it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, it took Hannah getting to a place just like this for God to pronounce the birth, the conception and birth of Samuel the prophet. She had to wrestle with God a little bit and not give up until a backslidden priest would prophesy on her behalf and announce the conception of the son that she had longed for for so long. It's in times like this where things are birthed within us. They're birthed in the hearts of God's people. In times like this, that things appear in our prayer closets in subsequent days, and we're reminded it was born in that service. It was born in that atmosphere when I manifested myself on that Sunday afternoon. Do you remember that? It's conceived in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And it's just now coming forth. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. My God. <laughs> oh, there's such a powerful presence of God in this place. Holy One of Israel. 
My God. We are respectfully and fearfully in your presence, Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. 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 My God, my God, my God. My God, my God, my God, wash us here today, Jesus. Let the rivers of your blood flow through this place today and cleanse us, Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. My God, my God, my God. My God, my God, my God, my God. Oh, Jesus, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you,
Thank you, Jesus. The Lord wants me to tell you to make sure not that you're a part of this church or congregation. Make sure you're a part of the church. Of the church. The church. Just because you're a part of this church does not mean you're a part of the church. If you need me to explain that later, I'll be happy to do so. You have to be a part of the church. Some of you have struggled with things for years. I'm apprehensive yet compelled to share with you. Two weeks after we walked into an apostolic church, a month before we were baptized, my wife took off her slacks and never put them on again. Just by seeing the way godly women dress, she threw those things away and never put them on again. The girl that wore a ring on every finger just by seeing that godly women don't wear jewelry, she took off her jewelry and never put it on again. Had not cut her hair in some years, but determined that a razor would never be put to her head again in spite of the scalp psoriasis that she had, never will I allow a razor to be put on my head because of the word of God. Some of you have struggled with things for years. It's time that you get your house in order, your spiritual house in order because God's coming back for a people who have made themselves ready. That's what that's talking about. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's not enough fear of God today, but there will be before he returns. There will be. Bless God. I'm not building up my wife or anything like that. But we never had any holiness teaching whatsoever. She didn't need it. She said, that's the way they dress. That's the way I'm dressing. That's the way they look. That's the way I want to look. And that's what ought to be in every one of our hearts today. My Lord. I believe God's done something here today. Nobody's getting baptized? Is there somebody getting baptized? Oh, Okay. Well, I'm just, come on. As they say somewhere, come on down.
that by the confession of your faith and obedience to the word of God, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Lucas, upon the confession of your faith and obedience to the word of God, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. that are involved with the cleaning come on over so Sister Bruce can take care of this business so y'all go eat everyone that's going to be a part of the cleaning program which is pretty much all of us <laughs> 